I'm Tara Lake, and this is The Tara Lake Show. Thank you so much for joining me this week on The Tara Lake Show. Today, I'm honored to bring you a special interview that addresses a compelling issue that made America pause and consider our complicated immigration policy and ask difficult questions about the impact of race, ethnicity, and centuries of history on the specifics of that policy. The treatment of over 14,000 Haitians seeking asylum in Del Rio, Texas at the U.S.-Mexico border last month in September 2021 has been burned into our minds. And the image of Border Patrol agents wielding horse reins like whips sparked historic shame and outrage. Despite condemnation from President Joe Biden and Department of Homeland Security Secretary Alejandro Mayorkas, the current administration appears to be continuing in the highly controversial policies that have been directed at Haitian asylum seekers since the 1970s, and most recently with the administrations of Barack Obama, George W. Bush, and Bill Clinton. The realities of political unrest, natural disaster, economic instability, and American culpability in the turmoil in Haiti have caused many Haitians to flee the island nation for decades. In recent years, Haiti has faced a string of difficulties that have driven many to flee the country, including a horrific earthquake in 2010 and a disastrous combination of devastating events over the summer of 2021 including a tropical storm, a 7.2 earthquake, and the assassination of President Jovenel Mose. Despite this, Haitians are still the least likely of any nationality to have their asylum petitions granted in the United States. And this is not the first time we've seen the spectacle of Haitian Americans being denied due process in our immigration system. In the 1990s, an estimated 12,000 Haitian refugees were detained at Guantanamo, and the practice of arresting or ejecting Haitian refugees migrating by boat off the coast of Miami has led to a cycle of images of hundreds of Haitians being denied access to the right to seek asylum on a consistent basis, despite what many see as overwhelming evidence for their claims. President Jimmy Carter was one of the first to establish harsh U.S. policies toward Haitian immigrants seeking asylum, with the aim of sending any Haitians who made it to the United States shores to detention and then back to Haiti, despite the horrors of the Duvalier regime during this period. In 1978, the Carter administration's infamous Haitian program directed at Haitian migrants seeking asylum devised a blanket policy designed to deter Haitians from migrating to the U.S. This policy jailed Haitians as they arrived, refused Haitians permission to work, and denied all Haitian asylum claims as a matter of course. Even though federal courts struck down the Haitian program, Every subsequent administration, Reagan, Bush, Clinton, Bush, Obama, Trump, and Biden, has carried the stamp of the Haitian program. Another vital marker of this distinct policy toward Haitian refugees has been the Reagan tactic called interdiction. 
the practice of intercepting Haitians on boats off the coast of Florida, preventing them from reaching American shores and detaining them for return to Haiti. While human beings have the right to seek asylum, afforded by the Universal Declaration of Human Rights and here in the United States by American law, a person must be on American soil or at the American border to claim asylum in the United States. Interdiction systematically blocks Haitians from making it to the country, so they never have the opportunity to apply for asylum in the first place. This policy does not apply to migrants from Haiti's neighbor, Cuba, and it does not apply to migrants from other nations around the world. The latest example of this exclusionary trend toward Haitian migrants is the invocation of Title 42, a clause from America's 1944 Public Health Services Law that allows the country to prevent asylum seekers from coming into the United States during a health crisis. Title 42 was invoked by President Donald Trump to deport people seeking asylum at the border. After Democrats heavily criticized Trump's use of the policy, President Joe Biden is now utilizing the policy to eject Haitians seeking asylum, just as his predecessor did. Recent headlines have forced Americans to reckon with the history of immigration policy toward Haitians seeking asylum, refugee status, and traditional immigration to the United States. It has also forced us to wrestle with the very apparent contradictions demonstrated in our immigration and evacuee policy toward a select few nations during a period of massive global migration. Temporary Protected Status, or TPS, has been extended for Haitians who arrived in the United States after the devastating 2010 earthquake. But Haitians continue to face heightened deportation from the United States, just as they did under the Obama and Trump administrations. Today, Haitians face a myriad of issues in Haiti, the United States, and in South and Central America. And as tens of thousands undertake the harrowing, often deadly journey via the Darien Gap of Panama and Colombia as part of an arduous trek from South to North America, the Haitian asylum crisis has become more urgent. It's against this backdrop that I reached out to Gary Ame, president of Comité Haiti Incorporated, a Baltimore-based Haitian grassroots organization. I asked Gary to help us to understand the complexity of the Haitian immigration experience in America. So the name of the organization is Comité, which is a Creole word meaning uh, committee, um, and IET. So it's Comité IET and, and Incorporated, which is we have an acronym, which is KAI. What we are, we are a, a Haitian grassroots organization that is geared towards providing programs, connecting the community to educational, social, cultural resources that promote and support community development within the Baltimore and Maryland area. We started off back in 2016, but the organization, which I, I, I found, I'm the founder of, that spurs out of the, the earthquake that happened in Haiti in 2010. And when we uh, Haitians in Baltimore and Maryland, we, we thought at the time, and we still agree with that, um, 
in the media and outside of the media, you always have um, non-Haitians who would have a narrative of the Haitian culture and history. And, you know, we never have a voice. Uh, not to say that we, we do have allies, but for some reason that there's always been a negative stigma of the Haitian people, the Haitian culture, that we decided, you know what, it's time for us to make ourselves public so we can start telling our own story. Wonderful, thank you so much. And so uh, what, what we're hearing then is that this is a, a long-term effort uh, beginning in 2010 that culminated in the founding of Comité Aite in 2016, and that your work has continued uh, on a cultural level, on an educational level, uh, certainly on an outreach level. Uh, would you say that that's, that's correct? That I get the sense? That is, that is exactly correct. You hit the nail right in the head there. That is absolutely correct. And then the, the branch of that is that the development derived from immigration services, health services. And then you're right. We are, it's a continued process, continued um, mission to, to highlight the, the Haitian culture and in America, not just Baltimore, in America. And I think if more people starting to hear or listen or do research on the Haitian culture, they walk away impressed by a small black country, the, the amount of um, um, accomplishment that we have made uh, from a, a um, cultural standpoint and also from a, a slavery standpoint as well. So much for that. And so I would say that I'm a bit fortunate because I happen to come from Northern New Jersey. And so I had the experience <laughs> of, of having grown up in a community that included uh, Haitian American students and also new Haitian American immigrants who I had the opportunity to grow up with. But as a result of that, I also saw what was clearly a systemic discrimination and systemic stereotyping that was specific to the treatment of Haitian Americans. And, and I'm just speaking about my own Northern New Jersey experience. Right. And so I think that many people, if they haven't been fortunate enough to grow up in community with Haitian Americans, may not be aware of that. Could you tell us what, what do Americans need to understand about the experience of Haitian immigrants that we may not know? It's a great question, and 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 the Haitian migration and the Haitian experience is no different than um, our black, brown um, immigrants, locals that is in the United States. Where typically, where we are entrepreneurs, hard workers, family oriented, education oriented, and and recently that you know the census have that besides the our. African diasporas from the Nigeria, you know, Haitian has become the second highest degree holders, entrepreneurs, educators, black immigrants um, out of the United States. So the, the Haitian experience, and I can speak for myself when I came to this country by, you know, the 1980s and, and I was eight years old and coming, living in Miami and I grew up around, you know, I lived in the city, you know, Alapata, and I was so fortunate to be around black community. And then right after that, the the um, the HIV pandemic uh, um, hit, and then it was astonishing that it was my workup calling to see how the Haitian stigma 
has been portrayed in the media how Haitian was a carrier of the HIV virus. And from that point on, and I've learned as a young age what the struggle is. You know, when you're young, you know, your parents trying to shield you from some negative stigma, but so at times they can't protect you enough when the media is talking about how the way Haitians are, they, you know, they vote people. And, and but no, there's it's always that negative stigma, stigma, stigma. And then, and Carol, for you to say that you grew up around, you know, you had the opportunity to grow up around Haitian, you, you are, you are the, the fortunate one. And then I've always said my, my, my black brothers, brown brothers, sisters in, in America is that if you have ever taken the time to look at, compare the Haitian story and the story of the United States, we're right behind the United States. Why is one country so prosperous? The other one is not so prosperous from an economic standpoint. And the bottom line is that, yes, we are a black nation. We are proud to say we are a black nation. Not to say that we are only have black people in Haiti, but we are a majority black nation in the Caribbean. And then we are paying a heavy, heavy, heavy price for what we have done in the past. And it has to do with the, you know, the free ourselves from the bondage of slavery um, from France. And of course, the United States had a role in it. Britain had a role on it. Germany had a role in it. You know, Canada has a role on it. And, and so as you probably hear from my voice is that the frustration um, from from Haitian, and we're not just Haitian, we're all Black nations. And and I want to swerve off a little bit by saying that the Black caucus of, of the United States, you know, our Black leaders in the United States need to start looking deep, deep inside where they have failed a Black nation uh, such as of Haiti. And, and what do you think some of those areas have been? Could you um, elaborate more on those areas of failure, uh, Mr. Ahmed? Yeah, almost definitely. And for my short term living in this in, in, in this wonderful land, place called Earth, I come to the conclusion is that money, you know, people say, you know, um, the love of money is the root of evil, but sometimes the lack of money could be lead you to, you know, to some evilish ways as well. And then that's that's my always my thinking of that, is that I find that um our leaders who um, who have been, I don't want to say brainwashed, are not educated enough. Because I have not met too many black politicians, brown politicians, who can f- sit and tell me the history behind Haiti. All they know is that Haiti is a poor country, Haiti has corruption, but they don't even know the depth behind all of this. So I find that that is Sometimes we are too busy trying, I think this is a word I hear, trying to get along instead of trying to stand out to be the, the rogue in the room, where sometimes righteous thinking does not mean you are wrong. And, and, um, and, and I find it astonishing that even though Komite IT, we are 501c3, we're non-political, but as the same token, we all support policies that impact every minorities, immigrants, anyone that's seeking refuge in the United States. And I find that those policies are not applied equally under the law when it comes to the Haitian migration. And, and, and actually, I was planning to ask you more about this. And before I do that, something occurred to me. One of the things that I uh, realized that you, you talked a bit about your experience uh, as, a, as a child in the 1980s. And um, many of us who were coming along during that period, 
remember that this wasn't just as simple as narratives. It wasn't something that was as simple as stereotypes. It had a, a major impact in policy and even in health policy. I remember hearing on the news and then watching my friends experience the impact of a decision not to allow blood donations from the Haitian American community, which at the time was only happening with uh, men who were known to be gay because of HIV and AIDS. And so this is the only other community that that was happening for. And that blatant type of discrimination, that type of languaging impacted my friends who were just kids going to school. I saw the impact of that. And I, yeah. I, I am not a Haitian American child. And so I saw my friends in, in experiencing that. Do you have your own family and your own children? And what, uh, what kinds of conversations are you having now with your children in the face of many issues that feel very similar that are coming up today? Yeah, and, and and I'm glad you, you you elaborate on your own personal experience, and 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 I want to touch base on my family side. What I find astonishing is that at the time when I was young, and now really looking at it, to me it was an attack on black people. That's the way the way I looked at it. It was not an attack just Haitian. It was an attack on black people, and you know we share an island with the Dominican Republic. And then they also have um, black people there. You know, some some of us don't. Our Dominican brothers don't want to acknowledge that they are a black nation, but they are a black nation. Not to criticize it, but this is the truth that you know one side is called a, a black nation, the other side is called a Latino nation. But that's that's you know that's word association there. But um, to me, it was an attack on black nation, a black people. And um, and then it reminds me of what happened to the Tuskegee experiment. It's a black nation. What happens to uh, our sister who, with John Hopkins University, had been testing medically? It was black people. And then slavery, the migration, black people. So to me, and, and if you look at nations around the world, most people don't be associated with the black people. And and I believe that it is an attack on the black nation around the world. Yes, Haitians get the most brunt of, of the attack. Now, how do I talk to my kids? My, I do have, a, you know, blessed enough, I do have five kids. And and then my, my kids, I, you know, from the lesson when I was growing up in Miami, I tend to get my kids really involved internationally because I have my kids learning Chinese, some learning Arabic, some learning, you know, of course, I speak French and Creole, some Spanish. I try to integrate them as much of the world as possible because there's a big world outside the United States, right? We all think the United States is, is the one and only, but there's another group outside the United States. But I, I, I teach my kids that first, that you're all black, you're a black person, right? You're black. When you walk into a room, you're a black person. Secondly, you, you know, you're Haitian American, you know, and my wife is Nigerian, you're Nigerian American. People would judge you based when you walk into a room based on the color, but don't let that stop you from achieving what you want to achieve. Because, you know, we live in, in one of the greatest times right now. You can be what you want to be. There are going to be those out there who try to throw stone at you. Um, put your shield guards on. It doesn't mean that you avoid to put your shield guards on. And then when the time is right, you fight back. But right now, provide as much tools as we can. Educate yourself. 
learn, listen, and then and then we, we tend at times we want to uh, express our views without listening. And I think right now, Black America, before we react to what's going on at the southern border, what's going on with our Black cities, Black counties, we need to listen. Sometimes if we listen, the message is, is louder than we think it is. Thank you so much for that. That is very insightful. And you brought up to a sort of pan-African experience of racism and oppression and how that ties into immigration. And I love that you, you're really demonstrating for us that the experience of, of Black peoples in uh, the immigration system, for example, that, and, and the experience of Haitian peoples in the immigration system is really part of a larger, a larger issue of discrimination. And I, I love how you tied that together with the Tuskegee experience and the experience of Henrietta Lacks and yes. all, of, all of those issues. I think that one of the things that has happened recently is that people have not been aware of, of, of the change in migration paths from our normalized experience. So certainly for many of us who remember, uh, again, the 1980s, uh, I think of the Papa Doc and the Baby Doc years. So for us, that, that's what we, uh, that is what created, I think, our concept of Haitian immigration to the United States and how that immigration occurs. And so I think many of us have not really heard about the wave of migration that has been happening through uh, Central America and South America and via the Darien Gap. And right. for, for many of us, we've just been hearing about this migration path in the last year, in the last few years, maybe, uh, because right. some, some international news has been covering it, but not not a lot in the United States. So right. because of that, when because of the recent issues at the Texas border, uh, people really didn't have a sense, really didn't understand even why or how it was possible that this was happening at the Texas border. And I, right. I wonder what your organization has seen with the impact of the Darien Gap on Haitian immigration to South and Central America or through South and Central America and then continuing up through the Southern U.S. border. Could you tell us whether, has your organization seen an impact of this? And could you tell us why we've heard how dangerous it is? Could you tell us, help us to contextualize what that tells us, why people would take such a treacherous trail? Yeah, this is, this is a good point. And it's something where um, a lot of people in the media are not talking about. You know, there's always, we in the United States, we have an immigration policy. And then we in, in the, you know, immigrants, especially the Black immigrants, there's also a second policy that's always, you know, towards the Haitian population. So doing, right after the earthquake in 2010, and, and, and well, a lot of the uh, Southern uh, American countries, including the United States, you know, reached out and, and to see what ways they can help the, the Haitian population, those who are uh, not doing so well. And right after that, there was a, um, the World Cup in Brazil and also the Olympic in Brazil as well. So the Brazilian government and also, of course, Chilean government and others, they approached the Haitian government at the time to provide Haitian with jobs during the World Cup and the Olympics. So right after that, 
what the Haitians were not getting in South America, you know, as as I like to call it, is what our uh, most of all our Latino brothers going through here, what we call it, you know, the Dreamers and then the TPS. Same thing was happening in South America. So you have a bunch of workers, but these workers are, you know, sometimes they bring their wives, sometimes they bring their kids, sometimes they have new kids. Uh, they have births born in South America. However, they were not getting legalized documentation to, to stay in this country. So Brazil, at one point, they, you know, they used the Haitian labor force, then they were done with you. So the Haitian basically sitting in limbo, you know, um, they can go back home because the, the situation back in Haiti, uh, due to, of course, I, you know, I hate to get political, due to uh, the United States and those allies I mentioned and always impacting the Haiti's um, election process. And then, you know, we, they, they, they choose who they want to lead Haiti. And some of those leaders are very corrupt. Now you have you know, security issues like gangs and violence. So a lot of the thousands and thousands of Haitians who were stuck in, in South America. Then you have what people call mules, where they were more like, you know, um, agency of, of travel agency who would prey on people's sovereign, you know, uh, suffrage. Then they would basically, you know, hey, if I can get you to Brazil. And then people would pay for round trip tickets and they found out their tickets were, were um, was only a one-way ticket. Now they stop. Now, fast forward. We know that, and, and I hope the, 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 the listeners and the readers hear me out here on, on this very important aspect. A lot of us in the Haitian community, even under the Clinton administration, and you know, Clinton right now, he's going through what you call an apology um, tour, apologizing what he did to the Haitian economy and impact the Haitian economy. Then you have George Bush, who is not basically, you know, what he did to the Haitian politics, right? Look at the trend here. Then after Bush came, you have one of the uh, first black president of the United States, black president, but look at his policy of Haiti as well. And we, matter of fact, a lot of us call him the chief of deport deportation. That's yes. what he did. He the deported a lot of Haitians. Again, that, yes, uh -huh. exactly. A black oh, yes. president, right? So a black president, black nation, right? So he contributed for eight years. That's what he was known for. And then we, after his presidency, we have, you know, President Donald Trump, the continuation of deporting Haitians. And then now I come in full circle with um, current president, Joe Biden, who, if you, his, if you do his research, he has never said anything positive about the Haitian history, the Haitian people at all. He never has. So now the question is, how, why will those Haitians take the risk to come to the border? There's been a lot of misinformation out there saying that, you know, the Biden administration would offer um, temporary status to the Haitian community. Uh, due to the recent earthquake that just happened um, not too long ago, TPS. And then I, for one, as one of the leaders of the community, I didn't buy into it. I didn't think Biden would, you know, Biden uh, is always ruled from, uh, from the middle. And then Biden never came across to me as a, 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 a champion for, um, you know, the Haitian um, people. Never came across to me. But when I saw thousands of thousands of Haitian people that is at the border, my personal opinion is that what information did, who relayed that information to them to, to reach to this border? Maybe it's a TPS, maybe it's some, I, I really don't know. We, we are dumbfounded right now in the Haitian community, the widest people where they are. 
my personal opinion is that I think they are looking for some form of legal status, but they were not getting it in South American countries, right? And and I remember many years ago, there was a Brazilian president who said this, and he found it amazing. He says that, um, he said, Brazil is, is, is full of black people. He said, no, no, we don't have those problems. And he used that word. We don't have that problem. So I, in, in the Haitian, and you, you said, as you stated, you, you live around Haitian. Haitian are the closest you are going to get, in my opinion, what we call African people. We still control that African culture. We still hold on to that, right? Due to the fact that when we got our independence, when we you know how close we are to Africa. I remember Truman has said this. When I remember, like I read about, it, he says that those Haitians are so stubborn. Stubbornness meaning that we still hold on to our African culture rituals, and we have the nerve to speak French, Spanish, Creole, and English. That is the only island in the Caribbean where you can you can actually move around using those four major languages. So. Uh, to uh, be honest, to answer your question about the migration, we are dumbfounded. We are hurt um, by the by this immigration policy. These um, the homeland security secretary, the way he's behaving himself, and and right now I understand that I've got words that we have a few Haitians that's migrating to Maryland. I've been calling around to get where they are putting them at, at what shelter are they are they releasing them in the public. We can't even get that information. So it, it's a very limbo situation for a lot of the Haitian community in Maryland. I think in addition to what we have seen at the Texas border, uh, some weeks before, there were, there were at least two stories to come out of the Miami area with regard to there being boats stopped, either turned around and arrests happening off the coast of Miami. I wonder if you could speak a bit to that. It seems that what we're seeing at Texas and what we're seeing at Miami is sort of a blanket strategy to block and deny Haitian applications for refugee status, Haitian applications for asylum or refugee status. Do you see a connection? Uh, and could you perhaps tell us about the connection between those recent incidents at the coast of Miami and uh, the incidents at the Texas border. Sure, sure, I can. You know, as a Haitian person, um, we are not, and I'm gonna speak, you know, we're not monolith, but I'm gonna speak on that aspect is that we are not surprised by this. And, and this goes back in the eighties. I'm gonna be honest with you, this goes back in the eighties. There's always been two immigration policies, one for the general population and one for the Haitian people. All Haitians know this. They all know this. I mean, I mean it, it, it's not new to us. It's not a new revelation that the United States behaving this way towards the Haitians. Well, what is new for a lot of um, outsiders, and I mean, I saw a non-Haitian is that not able to see, you know, with the new social media we have and content, people constantly getting content. Now we're able to see the, the difference of treatment, how Haitians are treated, and how other nations are being treated. So let us take the, the Cuban uh, policy versus the Haitian policy, for example. There's a dry foot, wet foot the Cuban has. So the minute like the Cuban steps for the United States, he or she is automatically receive some form of uh, quick benefits and they, he or she will receive within months, 
I-90 card to start working. And then within a couple, um, even less than a year or two, you get your green card. And after that, you work your way to citizenship, right? Why is that doesn't apply to Haiti? And then the United States government always said, well, Haiti are, are, are leaving for um, economic reasons. Well, let's, let's, let's be honest here. If a bunch of Cubans were economically well off in Cuba, would they leave? No, they wouldn't. If a bunch of Haitians were economically well off, would they leave? No. But however, Tara, this is what we always say as Haitians. If Haitians are allowed, even though the United States always says Haitians are governing themselves, no, we are not the governing ourselves. The United States always have a say about Haitian politics. They always do. So shall I say that what drives the different policies between Haitian and other nations the only thing I can think of, and a lot of Haitians can think of this, we are paying a debt, a 200 and some years debt for what we've done by embarrassing those powerful nations. We still will borrow a quote from our brother who died in Minnesota, and then God rest his soul. We still have that knee on our neck when it comes to the Haitian people in the United States. We still do. We now that we're starting to see it because social media is, is open people's eyes to see, well, why is such two new policies? And, and not to pivot to this, again, our Af our Afghanistan brothers and sisters who are righteously deserve the right to receive the refugee status and the Asali status. But the optic of this is that 96,000 plus Afghan are allowed to come here, flown here which is, I, I support that. But the optic is that you have one brown people coming in with no problem. Then you have dark-skinned African people being, allegedly, being stopped by horses. And then the, the Border Patrol have a whip in his hand, even though the whip was used to control the horse. But the optic looks pretty, pretty darn bad. Pretty bad. You brought together the idea of Haitian people really experiencing within immigration policy, something akin to, you used the example of the murder of George Floyd, having a knee on its neck, uh, paying a debt because of the, uh, the Haitian revolution under Toussaint Louverture, of a fight for, for freedom from the French and independence from the French, which made Haiti the first free African nation in the Western Hemisphere um, and the oldest free African nation in the Western Hemisphere, which has, as you say, has always been, I think perhaps it became particularly ramped up in the 20th century, but has always had a strong either military or political influence from the United States. But, it, it, and you, uh, you connect it to that political history we only have about a, a minute or so remaining. Is sure. there anything else, especially with regard to the particular experience of Haitians seeking asylum or seeking refugee status here in the United States or just seeking immigration, just seeking, just seeking to immigrate lawfully to the United States? Is there anything else? Yeah, I'd like, like to close by saying that I've done a lot of work for and working in the asylum and refugee status. What, I'm, what I cannot understand is that in order for someone to um, apply for asylum, you have to hear his or her story in terms of why you are seeking asylum because the person may feel as though that, hey, going back in, you know, um, to my home country, I'll be persecuted. 
what I found amazing is that how the United States were deporting those Haitians without even hearing if they are deemed to qualify for asylum or a refugee status. That's the part that I, I could not understand. We Americans, Haitian Americans, Caribbean Americans, um, African American, Black American, because you no, know, we all have a status quo we have to check in the box. All we always want, you know, just like with the police treatment, everything else, we've always wanted in this country equal protection under the law. That's all we've always wanted. And then Haitians, our black brothers and sisters, African brothers and sisters, everybody, we've always wanted equal protection under the law. And I felt as though that some of the policies that just what happened with us Haitian, we did not get that equal protection under the law. And I want to say to you, merci beaucoup. And I'm going to say it in Creole. Moi appreciate tant ça avec. That means thank you very much. I appreciate the time. Merci beaucoup. And I thank you. I so appreciate your time and your expertise in shedding light on this issue. Thank you again, Gary Aime from Committee Aite Incorporated. Merci beaucoup. Kambila. Thanks so much to Mr. Gary Aime, president of Comité Aite, for this insightful interview. To learn more about Mr. Aime and Comité Aite, please visit www.comiteaite.org. That's www.k-o-m-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-t-e-a-y-i-